When I tell people I'm an accountant, I'm usually met with one of two responses. Number one, aren't you a bit too cheerful to be an accountant? Or number two, oh, I couldn't do your job. I'm not a numbers person. Well, you can make your own mind up on number one, but number two is where this podcast is here to help. My name is Victoria, and I am living proof that you can turn your hand to even the most unexpected things. I want to encourage everyone to become an unlikely accountant. I will be chatting to people who have mastered their confidence with money to help them do the things they've always dreamed of. So if you're not a numbers person, but you think you'd like to be, then please tune in. And if you are a numbers person, great, I'll be in good company. See you soon. Just to clarify that this podcast will at no point discuss financial accounting standards, mainly because I can't remember them. That's all right then. Yes, we're in business. Good. I think. So now you just need to make sure that you don't say anything shit. (laughs) I've just seen your messages on WhatsApp properly hounding me. Well... No, well, do you know what it is? It's because I was I'm worried that the time's going to be ticking down on Zoom because I'm obviously too basic to pay for like the premium where you can have an unlimited call. So I think it times you out at 45 minutes, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Got to keep the cost base low with a new podcast. It's called bootstrapping your podcast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just an unnecessary expense because anything interesting you've got to say, you can say in 45 minutes, can't you? True. I was going to say, what do you want to talk about? Well, I was just about to say, how do you feel about being uh, the first guest of season two? Works for me. Are are you excited? Season two is always better than season one, isn't it? Oh, we could probably put that to the test with all the stuff we've watched on Netflix over the last year. Oftentimes, the second series is better. Sometimes things keep too soon. Season six, isn't it? That's when it starts getting weak. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll bow out before I get to season six. So this is, we're right in the prime then, really, of, of what this podcast is going to have to offer, aren't we? <laughs> um, I haven't thought about what we were going to talk about. I thought we could just have a chat. Do you not have like a list of questions that you work through? Well, yes and no. I find when I've had those prepared in the past, I end up not getting around to asking any of them because you ask one thing and then before you know it, the conversation just goes somewhere that you didn't expect it to and then you don't have a have a list of of topics although what what I thought I would open with is I mean this podcast is obviously called the unlikely accountant which is named after me I'm the unlikely accountant but would you say you're an unlikely accountant I'm less unlikely than you are I didn't think I'd end up being an accountant which I suppose Mm. I haven't well no you are you are an accountant aren't you no but I'm I'm an accountant but I'm not called an accountant at work no no you're not but you, you, well, what did you think, what did you think you were going to do? What did you want to do when you, when you were younger? I didn't know what I wanted to do, which is why I did accountancy. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably what happens to most people, isn't it? Because yeah. I was, in my mind, it was, I had a good time at university. And, and one of the reasons I picked Deloitte was that you could get a job and then have a gap year and then come, come back to something. And also it was like almost an extension of university because you could, do your study whilst working a bit, whilst deciding what you really wanted to do once you qualified. That's interesting. So you just, you took a job that meant that you could not work for another year? Basically. Yeah. It was one of the one of the, the thoughts around it at the time. But also you knew, bearing in mind when I, this is going back to 1999 when I was applying, the milk round type jobs of going to work for a big corporate was was still 
knocking around in the system and they were still popular. I imagine they're less so now. And also the big thing that was growing at the time was banking. So everyone wanted to go down to London to work for an investment bank or a hedge fund or something in between. And so actually accountancy then was pretty, uh, it was quite an unfashionable area to go into. Whereas if you go fast forward 10 years when you've had a global depression credit crunch, all of a sudden it's it became quite popular because it was a sort of flight to quality, flight to safety type thing. And you were, you were getting this uh, badge that couldn't be taken away from you and was sort of an anchor to your career. So it was quite different when I did it. It wasn't, yeah. it, wasn't the, it wasn't the norm or it was less, uh, it was just a less popular choice, which is why they were doing things like driving people to work there. <laughs> Yeah, have, yeah, have a gap year and then come back and work a year later. That's so, yeah. So yeah. What, was, what's going to appeal to students? How can we attract students? Yeah, give them a job, but tell them that they don't actually have to work for another year. That seems to be yeah. a good way to, to get the numbers I mean, it was It was perfect, really, because you could then just pack your bag, pack your rucksack and go off, knowing for well that in September the following year, you were starting up somewhere. Uh, yeah, so that, like, that that was one of the decisions in my mind. The other was was obviously that it, it as I said, it, it sort of pushed out the decision making process because in my mind, I thought I'll probably end up in London working for a bank or doing something down there. Um, but I'll get I'll get this out of the way first. Uh, Where did you go on your gap year? Uh, the, the usual backpacker route at the time. Like so Central Asia. and South America. No, no, that was after. That was uh, that was the next thing. I, I did sort of Thailand, down through there, then Australia, New Zealand, across America. Um, it was was my route. But it was nice and character building. Uh, yeah, it was good. <laughs> it was uh, it was it was better to go then. I mean, it, bear in mind again, gap years were becoming more popular certainly before you went to university uh, and, and actually going after university was much better. You do a lot more things when you're 21 than when you're 18 mm. in the globe. Yeah. Uh, it's still quite, and you're probably a little bit more streetwise when you're 21. A little bit, 18. a little bit more. Just a, no, just a, that little bit more. Streetwise enough to know that you needed to have sorted a job before you went off. And then you had the security. Yeah. But it is, but it was quite hard when you got back because all of a sudden, having not really used my brain for a year, mm. I was having to, you sat in your lectures or whatever. Uh, yeah. Doing your um, learning T accounts and all that sort of stuff and going back to scratch. So that, and, and having done a history degree rather than anything finance related, it was quite a big leap for me to get, my maths head back on so it was quite hard at the beginning I, I felt quite a bit behind some of the others that were in there and then slowly get into the rhythm of it again well it's I mean it is hard they are I thought they were hard the exams I think I struggle yeah. more than most <laughs> probably the hardest thing you do aren't they they are because you're trying to study and work at the same time and that's a bit of an alien concept because Obviously, prior to that, you're just at uni and you can just focus on your degree 
and going out. <laughs> and then you get a job at Deloitte and you're trying to focus on still going out and work and exams. And it's it's a lot. Yeah, and there's a lot of them, isn't there? The, the, there's, yeah. there's a lot to learn and there's no dodging it. You can't just try and cram it in in the last week or so. You do no, you absolutely a, can't do that. A bit of a shift in. Uh, so that and that, and and I always I always intended then to once I've qualified was then well look, I'll look at what my choices are because that's that was always the good thing about once you got that ACA qualification you could then pick and choose you could stick in practice you could go into uh in, into industry and do something sort of commercial based or anything in between that so I, I mean I obviously know what you did but for the purposes of the listeners who don't know what what did you do uh well I then so after I qualified I wanted to move back up up north uh and I got a job at MBNA which is a, a credit card business uh and I was, I was doing some quite interesting stuff there it was risk management type things but I was getting involved in quite a few acquisitions uh so we'd looked at buying egg which was a, a sort of credit yeah. card business around there and rent at that time and a couple of other things. But then uh, that got that got bought by Bank of America and all the sort of interesting, exciting stuff stopped. And, and that was when I went actually went back to Deloitte. So I'd spoken to uh, my my old boss in Nottingham and said, look, a bit bored of where, where I am. Um, what do you reckon my next step should be? And he said, well, we're crying out for people in corporate finance uh, in, in Manchester. So send me your CV and I'll pass it on. So that's how I ended up back in at Deloitte. And it was that four years there that probably uh, uh, gave me the real bump up in my career because it exposed me to things that I've probably not really seen before in, in terms of talking to business owners talking to senior people in businesses uh ridiculously stupid hours uh, there's a slight downside of it yeah pretty unsustainable uh, over a long period of time unless you're really 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 into it uh but that that was a really good four years slog for one of a better word and then that got i then sort of pretty much made my mind so that was around 2006 to 2010 um, so I'd, I'd been through the credit crunch there and we'd, we'd done okay out of it. I mean, I was the only person at my, my level in, in the team. So I sort of stayed really busy. Uh, but it was pretty clear that it was going to change in that business at, at that point and it was going to get a bit more competitive around moving up. So I sort of sat there and thought, this isn't what I want to do for the rest of my, my life. Um, and, and I want to be a, an FD. I want to, or I want, well, I had sort of three sort of main measures, really. One was variety. So I got, I've got a very low concentration span. So I got bored very quickly. So if it wasn't, if I didn't have variety, it, it was a nightmare for me. I'd just um, really, really struggle. And was the job quite, was the job routine at, at, at that? Because the, the businesses are different, aren't they? And the industries are different. But for all intents and purposes, you, you're looking at the same things, aren't you? Once you've looked at one cash flow and you've worked through through it, you've looked at more, really. It's, mm. And it becomes quite formulaic. There might, and, and it becomes very process 
driven like all sort of professional services they, they have to break it down into something that can be repeated time and time again from a quality perspective so yeah it, it after four years or after sort of three and a half it was yeah it felt a bit samey for me uh, so I wanted something that gave me that variety always did uh, and then I wanted always wanted something that I felt uh, like I was a decision maker or close to the decision maker so I was uh, pulling the lever myself rather than being told to pull that lever or this lever uh, that was always sort of high on my my list of wants and then the third bit was to sort of be fairly rewarded for what you're doing in whatever that in whatever form that that comes uh, and, and and probably the in no particular order across those three things that was what I was always looking for um, so I'd made the decision right I want to go out and I want to be one of the senior decision makers and to be fair it's quite difficult to move from being in practice and someone to trust you with a, a director role in, in whatever area you wanted to choose so I ended up having to take a bit of a gamble really I went for something that was a startup was just beginning to do something it was it was all around branded hotels um, so taking unbranded hotels uh, or um, sub brand you know substandard branded hotels and then rebranding them as a Hilton or a Holiday Inn or uh, whatever it, it might be um, and we had a fund in the background that we raised uh, cash through to to fund the property transaction side and the development side and then you flipped it back into the fund and that's how you made you your money from it uh, that's interesting so who, so who are you actually working for so there was a fund that was buying up these hotels the, the, yeah this is where it was a bit messy so you, oh. you were effectively the the manager of the fund so you were advising the fund but you were also making a profit from from that fund so we were raising uh, uh, funds from individual investors, either through SIPs or ISAs or whatever it was, um, and and then effectively giving them a uh, ready-made property transaction that they would then earn an income off and also a capital gain when you end up selling it four, five, six years down the line. Um, and it's the, the, there's some grey areas in there because obviously you're making a profit yourself as a manager, so um it's about getting the, the the balance right between your profit and the investor's profit uh, side of it so it was very it was very interesting it was very uh, property wasn't particularly for me because it's very lumpy transactions um there's not the smoothness through it so you're desperately hunting around for a deal and then you do a deal and then you work it through and then you, everything's great for a couple of months and then you're desperately hunting another deal uh, See, this is really interesting because how because can you remember being back at Deloitte and knowing that you wanted to move on and then how did you find this job was it through a recruiter or did they or did you approach them or did they approach you yeah it was it was through a it, it was it was through a recruiter but it was someone I knew um was was the recruiter so he'd rung up and said look this is a, this would be a good one actually mm. um I can get you in on it but it was uh, it was a very different uh, environment to Deloitte where it was all very structured and, and safe and you've got a career there. You know, I went somewhere where it was a bit 
edgier. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very much uh, a, a startup environment, and and it was uh, there was a couple of other businesses that the guy had in there uh, that were like hair salons, for example, oh. they'd invest in hair salons, uh, and a re- and they had a recruitment business themselves. So there was a lot which weren't performing particularly well. So there was loads of different hats you, you needed to have on. So there was mm-hmm. a lot of variety in that perspective. Uh, and did you challenge. not at any point, did you not at any point think, I, I, I don't think I'm going to know what I'm doing here? <laughs> no, the only thing I thought was after three months is I've made the wrong choice here because he's got no cash. Oh, uh, okay. And, and, it's quite a problem is, then. <laughs> yeah, and this is going to be a lot harder work than I was led to believe. So, right. Um, in the same way that I, you know, got lucky getting that role. Also, he probably got lucky getting me with having Deloitte on my CV and and all the things that come with that and all the connections in terms of who I knew in the banking world and and legal side of stuff. So it was, I mean, I was I ended up being there for 18 months. I took it, it was loss making when I joined. When I left, it was profitable. Um, but for me, I didn't see the longevity in it. It always felt like you were a bit feast to famine on, 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 on the model side of it, and and a very much hand to mouth. So, but if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have got the job at, at MPM. Interesting, because I then had FD on my CV. I had quite a good story around what I'd done in terms of turning that those businesses around. Uh, and if I, I I wouldn't have got the job at MPM if I'd applied for it whilst I was still at Deloitte. So mm. you, having rolled that those dice, and mm. I did have quite a few people say to me, "I can't, I don't know why you've left Deloitte, and you seems like you're taking a big risk here. You've got two small kids at home." Um, but for me, it was sort of well, if I don't do it now, I might never do it. Um, I've got so to when this job, the the. The first one outside of Deloitte, where three months in, you realise there's no cash. Did you did you not start to panic then and think, oh, I need to jump ship and find something else now? Or did you kind of think, no, I I can tur- firstly I can turn this around, and secondly, I need to stay here for the sake of my CV. Both of those, yeah. Right. You yeah. think <laughs> you, you sit there and think you, you you go, no, I can I can see a pathway through this. I can s- sort this out if if everything if the cards fall our, our way um and also from a cv perspective you think i've really got to make this work and that was always one of the things with 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 a deloitte type structure where you know you are going out you're, you're having lots of meetings and you are selling you know deloitte services um i was never particularly interested in doing that bit of it because i never felt it benefited me hugely you know there'd be a partner in an office somewhere who'd uh who'd get all the benefit from from that so i never tried particularly hard yeah. um, but when it's when it's your monthly salary on the line mm-hmm. um and i was sometimes having to not pay myself to get through the month really um, and hold mine back a, a week or so um then all of a sudden you you become a lot better at promoting um what you're doing and selling what you what you need so because you need to yeah Uh, and and that's where this entrepreneurialism bit kicks in that's where people get this drive from it's because the it's not because they want to do it's because they absolutely have to do it to survive 
um, in, in the first instance. So that was a great learning experience for me, properly thrown into the deep end, uh, having to wrestle with things that I'd, I'd not come across, but then relying on new basic training and background to be able to pick those uh, pick your, your path through these things and in um, that time because there must have been some it's great that you were able to turn it around and there's a nice you know rags to riches type element of that story um but how much there must have been a few things that either just look helped you did look help you out like did some things just you know needed to go in your favor and they did and conversely did anything during that time you know really go a, a go against you or was it or was it just basic like hard graph just being sensible putting processes in place blah 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 that that you know helped uh I, I i always think there's a lot of luck involved in things you know right place right time that sort of stuff and, and i think that there there was enough luck in that first 12 months to make me realize that i didn't want to be there for much longer Okay. <laughs> uh, however, you've, uh, you know, I talk a lot about NPM as a, as a business, which is pet food. Um, so which is where you are now after the... the where where I'm now, yeah. Um, and, you know, we, I didn't know really at the time that pet food, pet market was, was going to grow like it has, that more and more people were going to be getting cats or dogs, that this whole humanization trend of pets would continue for as long as it has. You know, I, it wasn't like I was sat there waiting for the, I really need to get into pet. And when, when something comes up, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, but it, it has happened. And I always feel that as a small business, like, like we are, when I went in there, it was 11 million turnover and sort of break even at, at best, I would say. And we're now this year, we've just done a hundred million turnover. Uh, and done our, our second uh, management buyout private equity deal but um, that we are, are a little ship getting tossed around in the ocean here and you may you may move the rudder the right way as you're going down you know down the the, the wave but ultimately you you're not in 100 uh, percent control of what you're driving you're reliant on factors around you all the time uh now there's, there's obviously judgment involved and there's uh some strategic decisions you make along the way that benefit you but it, it's the age-old saying isn't it that you can have a um a, a great management team um but if they're in a, a poor a, a poor market then they're not going to be able to turn it around uh, it's just impossible you need the market going your way so and i think so i had a bit of that at, at the uh, property place uh but other than that it, there is also a lot of rolling your sleeves up and and just doing the work and, and getting through it uh, and i think if you don't it doesn't just happen does it you've got to you've got to put the effort in around this stuff um, so I, I would say a massive combination of the two really so after your 18 months and you were thinking, right, I don't want to be here much longer, how did you find this new role? Was that, again, through your recruiter pal? or That was, again, through this recruiter pal. Mm -hmm. um, and, and he lined me up a couple at the time. And a couple of, they, 
I think it was two or three that were knocking about at the time. One was insurance and something else I can't remember. And then this pet food. Uh, and it happened to be in Macclesfield where I was from originally. And I thought, oh, that sounds quite interesting. Actually, that's convenient. Met, <laughs> yeah. Met the the three, there were, there were two founders who'd set the business up, both called Roger, who were your classic entrepreneur types. You know, you name it, they'd sold it in the past. Secondhand right. cars, <laughs> timeshares, anything <laughs> in between. Uh, and, and they had started the business selling basically out the back of a van. I mean, they were going to uh, cat shows every weekend, selling the stuff, driving back on a, on a Sunday. That was the, the model. And, and originally they started with cat litter, uh, a, a, a sort of natural um, made byproduct of corn uh, manufacturing process. Uh, but it was a very, really, really good product. And they were selling that. And then they were building up a few more products, some bedding type stuff, to, uh, toys and things like that. But then they came across uh, a food idea. So there was an Italian business that was selling premium natural cat food. Uh, they looked on the back of the tin, saw it was made in Thailand. And being the types of guys they were, they flew over to Bangkok, arranged some meetings with the factories. One of them remortgaged the house and they got their first container of, of uh, applause over, which is the, the main brand name. Uh, and then from, from then on, it was sort of uh, growing sort of reasonably well. But then in 2006, uh, one of their friends, a guy called John, uh, came into the business and he was the one with the corporate uh, sort of pedigree marketeer by background and he really lifted their vision a little bit really from not just cat shows or the odd wholesaler but what about pets at home what about Sainsbury's Tesco's what about international expansion um, and, and he was the one who got them thinking about that side of it and then in 2008 they hired a guy called Julian Bambridge who's the C current CEO now as, as a sales director with the job of expanding it out into uh, the likes of Pets at Home and, and the, the UK grocers. Um, and then in July 11, those three founders stepped away from day-to-day -day running the business and moved Julian up to MD. And then he hired me as, as his FD at the back end of that year um, to sort of take the business from being owner-managed to having a bit more professional structure and uh, um, driving the growth in a, in a much more professional way, really. And how um, were you feeling then, then? Were you feeling like I've been an FD, so I'm, I'm loads more confident now. I know what I'm doing. Or were well, you thinking, the, the, no, I've still got a lot to learn. I don't know about Catherine. Ironically, walked in through the door uh, in November 2011 and after a month realised that they had no cash. <laughs> uh, and it and it it's it's um a business that's struggling and has got elements that are going backwards has no cash a business that's growing really really quickly has no cash because it's all tied up in stock well it's just gonna can just explain to the average because the average layperson who's not an accountant might be thinking well how can a business how can you not know if a business has got cash or not surely it's it's obvious but it's not in a, in a business, is it? No, it, it isn't. So in this business, um, they didn't have a daily cash flow forecast. 
Um, it was at the time it was growing at 50% a year, um, but the gross margins were only 30%. So if you think you're selling something and only making 30% on it, but you're growing at 50%, you can't recycle that cash through quick enough to buy more stock. Mm. And also, depends on who your your customers are. You might sell something, but then you don't get paid for 60 days because you've got invoice agreement. You know, that's the payment terms with your big supplier, which will often be the case, isn't it, with the likes of Pets of Home and Sainsbury's and everyone. So, And that's, that's, that's where that business was at the time. And you talk about luck. But I'd, I'd done this daily cash flow and I'd gone to June and said, we've got a bit of a problem here, mate. Uh, I think we've got to think about what we're doing here. And, but, and the, I think the business had uh, two, month, the two months before I joined, it had breached its uh, banking covenants on the uh, invo- invoice financing it had, which is a way of funding that uh, debtors cycle. So instead of us having having to wait 60 days for pets at home to pay us, we can get the money off the bank as soon as we've raised the invoice. So it's a way of closing that loop. Because they know um, you're good for it, essentially, at that point in time. Yeah, so it's just they, a time they own the debt, in effect, the, the debtor, so they can collect that in. Um, so they, they've got their sort of money side of it covered and they charge you an interest rate to do that. But um, it was around December time where we got a call from Coles, in Australia, which is a big supermarket chain over there. There's Coles and Woolworths, the two of them. Um, and it was an ex-Pets at Home buyer who said, look, uh, got a great opportunity for you here. Need a premium cat food brand. Can you can you get this in by April? And that was the real fuel, cash flow fuel for the business because we could, um, we shipped it direct from Thailand, which is where the majority of the product is manufactured. Um, and we could invoice it uh, off to Coles before we had to pay the supplier and get the money back through quickly enough. So, and it was very, very good gross margins at the time. Uh, it was uh, you know, close to fifty percent rather than thirty percent at, at that point because the Australian dollar was so favourable. Uh, it's not less so now, uh, <laughs> but uh, that then gave us a bit of headroom on on the cash to the end to fuel and fund the rest of the growth that was going on across the business and that was just timing perfect timing for us oh it's it's so interesting isn't it how yeah how these things come about but if we hadn't had that it would have been very different and then you had sort of six 12 months of, of really good trading record we got then you're building credibility with hsbc who we were banking with uh and then you're on a roll then it's you sort of in in motion then and you can you can carry on driving things through and the key there really was to 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 drive the gross margin forward as much as possible so the the when i when i sort of landed in that business daily cash flow was was forecasting was one thing that they didn't have the other thing they didn't have was they couldn't tell what uh margins they were making by product or by customer so they were launching in new customers with no idea whether they were profitable or not. And the biggest customer at the time was an Italian distributor and they were making 3% gross margin on that. <laughs> I don't know how a business can get to that size without knowing these kind of things. I think because they grow common? so quickly, they grow so quickly, uh, they don't have a chance to pause. And, and that's where they 
they they get into into trouble and you've got to remember the skill sets of the individuals you know the talk about roger roger you know pretty inspirational guys from a a a entrepreneurialism perspective but they can't navigate their way around a, a set of management accounts and they can't uh uh, work through uh, what gross margin they need to make on something to make X out of the, the, the end of it. Um, so it's about getting this blend of skill sets right at each mm. stage. And, the, the you know, I, I, we've we've done the amount, people talk about the Alex Ferguson thing at Manchester United about changing the team and creating new teams as he's moved through. That's what we've had to do at MPM over the years because Every time we've, you know, we've gone from 10 million to 30 million to 60 million to 100 million, the people who are right at 10 million aren't necessarily right further down the line. So someone who's brilliant with a a Midlands wholesaler is not the person you're going to put in front of Sainsbury's or Tesco's. You you need a different individual who uh looks at it in a in a different way is a bit more organized in in how they approach uh, and how do you make sure you stay relevant at all those levels uh well i think that's where that accountancy thing comes in because you can detach yourself from it and see where you're heading but it's my role in the business has morphed hugely over the year because you said at the start you're not really an accountant anymore no, and I don't. What are you, what are you now officially? Well, I'm now called Chief Operating Officer, uh, which is a very grandiose title for basically someone who sorts things out in in the, in the business. But that I I've, I've touched every bit of MPM, probably other than sales in a in a direct sense. But from a commercial sense, I've been heavily involved with the sales side um, and marketing. But it's how we used to divide it up between us was Julian did all the exciting sales and marketing stuff and traveled the world. And I kept the home fires burning in the office um, around finance, HR, customer service, supply chain. Uh, and you, you just build this sort of knowledge base about how, how the business functions and how it, how it works. And for us, it's that cycle of a tin around the business uh, as it, as it goes through each team or each, area and having a grasp around right we need to build that bit we need to strengthen that area uh, and and that's how i've done it but it, you do look back at times and think the business is so different to how it was when i when i came in uh, it, you do have to almost pinch yourself on occasions mm. well it, it, you can't predict these things because it's just like we say in the role of luck, you can't plan for that because you, you can't by the very nature of it. And I think it's interesting that because with the accountancy qualification, by the end of your exams, it becomes less about accountancy and it's more a generic business qualification, isn't it? It's about being able to like identify the risks, um, you know, how to scale a business, how to expand, all that kind of thing. And you end up um you know, put in the technical stuff that you've learned, but into um, very real life examples that that enable you to sort of ask the right questions and try and see where the blind spots are. So you don't have to be an expert in operations or HR or 
whatever it is, but you just need to be able to identify that there might be a blind spot there or an issue coming up or, and then you can hire in the right expertise that, that, you know, do have that kind of techie detail. Exactly. Um, And a lot of it's, a lot of it's just keeping it as simple as possible. mm. Which is easier said than done sometimes. And it's a bit like getting the right expertise. That's easier said than done because you don't, you know, to Roger Squared's point, they were great entrepreneurs, but they didn't know, they probably didn't know that they lacked uh, the commercial nouns or that they even needed, you know, they might not have thought, why do we need to know how much margin we're making as long as we're just growing sales? Isn't that okay? And if you don't know that there's a blind spot there, you can't even then attempt to get the right help um, if you don't know it's an issue. And that's a, the, the, it's very, anyone can come up with a solution, but it, it's, it's keeping that solution as straightforward and repeatable as, as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and having the, uh, the, the information in front of you to make those, make those decisions. And that's where I've, I've, again, I've been very fortunate that I've, I've worked with Julian, who is, uh, in the early days, I used to talk a lot about, I mean, he's high energy guy. He's a very, very good salesperson. And it, it used, the joke used to be that you know, he would run through a, a brick wall to, to get where we needed to be. And, and my job was sort of to pick up the bricks and put right. them in the pile behind him and say, maybe next time, could you just use that door over there? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but but that's again that that role's changed over over time. Uh, you know, you, you, Julian's a lot more uh, savvy around the numbers and and the sort of direction of the business than he um, than he would have people believe. And I'm a lot more salesy and um, sort of uh, aggressive in going after opportunities than the the sort of lazy imp- interpretation of our two roles would lead you to believe uh, and it, and that it's been that combo because i don't i don't think you can sort of do this sort of stuff on your own you do need people around you and it's pulling in those different skill sets i'm sure there's a podcast out there called the unlikely marketeer or something uh, <laughs> maybe but, yeah, but that, that you do need that other other side of it it's not all just about uh, having a, a handle on the numbers say you need the, the full rounded picture of this stuff which I do think is what that that accounting qualification gives you I've always said to people I'm not a technical accountant I'm not going to be able to draft up a set of statutory accounts or <laughs> do a tax return for someone um, mm-hmm. but the basic principles like you said of how do you take a situation and um build the right approach and to getting the best outcome that's that's what the qualification gives you I think I didn't realize we were going to talk so heavily about the uh, ACA qualification but now that we have I feel like I need to get in touch with the ICAUW and see if they want to buy this episode and use it as a you know a recruitment tool but it is but it's how it's one of the common themes between us isn't it I mean we've both been through it mm. um and we've both used it in in different ways, and mm. and I think that's it shows the breadth of it really in terms of, of what it what it can give you. Um, but it's not a uh, I don't think people need the it's not the numbers side of it, is it? 
I think, with this. It's the thinking through the processes. Yeah. Of, of it's definitely the other skills. And I remember when I, so when I applied to Deloitte, um, so you wanted to join because you could do a gap year. I wanted to join because I thought it meant that I'd be able to work in New York because I just left uni wanting to work in New York because I just used to watch Friends and Sex and the City and was obsessed with New York. And I thought, how do I work in New York? Maybe if I join a global organisation that has an office there, that seems like quite a nice route. And I remember asking um, uh, Mac, uh, Maca, I think it was, who uh, Andrew McKinnon, who's now the CFO of Moonpig, um, and sort of saying, oh, you know, can you can you transfer internationally if you work here? And you're just like, yeah, yeah, that's definitely a possibility. You have to pass your exams and everything first. Um, but if you become a chartered accountant, you've got job security for life. And I was like, oh, this sounds fantastic. I'm going to get to work in New York and I've got job security for life. Like, what more can I honestly want? <laughs> so why did you never do that then? What, go to New York? Yeah. I guess, well, I left, didn't I, before that became an option because I, I left not long after I passed my exams like a lot of people do thinking oh I can't hack this the hours are too long uh, but then funnily enough I then started working at Charles Tirrett and then I ended up going being able to go to New York quite a lot through Charles Tirrett because they had an office um, there so I kind of realized my New York dream but not in the way that I thought I would. But he did, that's the thing of it it does open doors doesn't it mm. I mean the uh, with I never would have thought that pet food would take me to Thailand, Australia, uh, Uruguay, Ecuador, the US, Canada, all these places I've been to. Pet food's so glamorous. Who knew? Rock and roll. (laughs) Well, it's done done you all right. Yeah, but it's it's been an exciting sort of, of... a journey really and people use that a lot don't they journey, journey but yeah has... we've all got a journey and we're all following our own paths <laughs> uh, but it, yeah it's been it's been an interesting one I didn't think I'd be you know looking after pet food for for 10 years so what's your key piece of advice if someone is listening to this because people used to message during season one people would message me and ask for like careers advice I guess what was what would be your top piece of advice I know I guess taking uh, a risk but being open I've, I've always got yeah I've always got two when people ask me so one is is do take that that gamble what's the worst that happens I mean the worst that could have happened to me was I would have just rung up and said could I come back to Deloitte please after well the worst that would have happened is the business didn't have any cash and continued to have no cash and went tits up under your watch <laughs> yeah but then I would have ended up back at Deloitte I would have been fine is that what you, was that your backup plan yeah, yeah, yeah I would have just gone back um, okay. we just rung them up and said sorry it's not worked out please have me back um, and and then I would have got gone again and I, I know I'm always very aware of a colleague that, that that you know as well that worked in a business that went went bust um, and, and I think that did scar him as an individual and he had an opportunity to go back into another another business that was connected to the one that had gone bust and he and he should have done it but he didn't. And I always look at that as you, you, you should have done it. You should have gone for it again. Um, but it's and, not being and, scared, is it? I think that's the thing, because we're being flippant about this. Like, oh, I would have just gone back to Deloitte. But not a lot of people would have wanted to have done that because you wouldn't have wanted to go back and and think, oh, yeah, I tried and I, and I failed. Um, I guess you obviously don't care about no, that. But I think a lot but, of people would. A lot of people would worry about losing faith. Uh, yeah, I th- <laughs> But I think you fail 
every day, don't you? It's something you don't, you don't sail through life, everything just going perfectly your way. And I think you'd so I, I would always say back yourself and take that. Don't take this a stupid gamble. I mean, it's, you know, you've got to make sure the odds are vaguely in your favor, but if you get the chance to, to do something and you believe it, then I, I think with a positive attitude, you can achieve a lot. Um, and then the set, the second bit for me is always uh, have a plan, ha- have a, whether it's five years, 10 years, I've always had a five year plan about okay. where I want to be five years down the line. Um, and it might be across a, um, a, a from a work perspective or, uh, or it might be from a personal perspective, but um, I always go back to the, I don't even know if it's true or not, but there was something in uh, like a load of Harvard and undergraduates where they got them to write down in a lecture where they'd be in five years time or something. Oh yeah. Um, and then they went back to them and the ones who'd actually written it down and kept that piece of paper were more likely to have achieved what they'd written down. There is um, something, so, when you write it down, your, your brain registers that it's important and you're more likely to achieve it. That is true. I believe that. And just checking in against it every so often, and you might adapt it, and you might tweak it, uh, and, but that that's been a, a really useful tool for me to sort of make sure that I'm I'm on track career wise with where I want I want to be and where I want to be headed. Um, that's so interesting. I wouldn't have had you down as someone that manifests. Man of mystery. <laughs> you are man of mystery from Macclesfield. well that was a lovely uplifting chat and I think I'm I'm definitely going to go and write down my five-year plan once I terminate this call that's that's not written down already sort of written down and you've just you've just taken your own risk anyway haven't you well I well I have yeah I'm listening to you I mean yeah I'm listening to you thinking oh I've done something something similar although I check the bank balance and we do have some cash so that's a good start at least <laughs> but now that I'm at the helm hopefully it won't run out so quickly <laughs> <laughs> yeah famous last words no I think it's it, I think now more than ever people are, are are being braver around their their decisions and I think um it, it, it's absolutely the right approach to take to this stuff because you've only Pack got yourself, one shot. Be I'm... positive. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. All right, well, we'll leave it there then. Good. Thank you very thank much. You for, thank you for chatting to me. Did you enjoy that? I did, yes. Good. Yeah. It's always great to talk about yourself, isn't it, really? Thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed that episode, please make sure you hit subscribe. That seems to be what all the other podcasters ask people to do. And also, please do give me a follow on Instagram. I'm on at the unlikely accountant. So you can send me any DMs with any thoughts or feedback. Only if it's complimentary, of course. Thanks.